Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is going to be a great show. I have Marjorie Wildcraft with us today from Backyard Food Production, and uh, she's just awesome. And she's got so much great stuff to talk with us uh, today about, uh, all kinds of really great things of how you can grow your own food and provide your own food, both uh, by growing food and by raising small livestock. She's someone that's actually doing it. Uh, she's built her business doing it and teaching other people how to do it. She'll be with us in just a minute. Before I bring her on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, at least most weeks, five days a week. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today, folks, uh, HarvestEating.com. That's the awesome Chef Keith Snow there. Uh, that teach you, He teaches you how to cook locally and seasonally so that all that great stuff you're growing that you don't find in a grocery store or getting from your CSA or what have you, you actually know how to use it. And the stuff that you know kind of goes into short supply during the winter months, you learn how to cook with what is available. So check out HarvestEating.com. you got to get Chef Keith's uh, cookbook. The membership there is a great deal. Just check them out. And uh, if you really want to know how to turn your preps into awesome meals, Chef Keith can help you do that. Next up today, Emergency Essentials. If you're not getting their catalog, go sign up for it and get their catalog. It's free, and you'll get it several times a year. And there's all kinds of great stuff to help supplement your long-term storage uh, food uh, plan there. And uh, they also have just a great website with a lot of really great information. Again, their website is BePrepared.com. Not sure how they got that uh, before the Boy Scouts did, but it's a great name for their website because, you know, that's what they do. They help you be prepared. Again, Emergency Essentials, you'll find them at BePrepared.com, and I highly recommend you get their catalog, which, again, is free. Just fill out a form. One of our other sponsors is running a contest right now. You can win a Harvest 72 system from ShelfReliance.com. There's a blog post uh, out about that. I'll put a link in today's show notes as well. Uh, all you got to do is go over to their blog. You'll read how the contest works. Basically, you friend them on Facebook, make a comment, that kind of thing, and you could win one of these systems. They're valued at over $400. Uh, that's part of my commitment to bring bigger prizes to the audience over uh, from here on out. Uh, last time we gave away an AR-7 survival rifle. This time we're doing a Harvest 72 system. Uh, next up, the same sponsor that did the survival rifle is going to be doing an AR upper. Um, so I think we're gonna we're gonna really start upping the ante of what we're giving back to the community with this new contest program. Again, just check out the links in today's show notes where you can find out more about this current contest being run by ShelfReliance.com. Uh, next up, remember to connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are the three social media platforms I use most. I like to stay in touch with you. I like to provide you additional content that I can't always get on the air. Uh, Facebook and Twitter specifically are what I use to get out that additional content. A lot of the news, current events type of things that are going on that just don't make it into the show, I put those out there. Also connect with us on our 
form. Our form is still growing. It's amazing that even after all the growth we've had, we're still continuing to grow. But that's uh, because it's a great place. It's a great environment to learn more about prepping. So check out the Survival Podcast Forum. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you will get exclusive content available only to members. You'll be supporting the show at $0.20 cents an episode. You'll get over $100 worth of free ebooks on day one. Uh, you'll get videos that are available nowhere else. It's a great deal. You'll also get zip files of every episode of Survival Podcast ever published. So if you're wondering, how do I get all 698 episodes in iTunes? Joining the MSB will help you get that done. With that, we are ready to get into the main topic of today's show. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate to have with us today one of my favorite people, Marjorie Wildcraft. Uh, Marjorie, of course, is a nationally recognized expert in organic backyard food production. She's the creator of the widely acclaimed video tutorial titled Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm. Of course, I've personally endorsed that very highly myself. She teaches people with no gardening, gardening or agriculture experience how to successfully grow healthy, vibrant, life-giving, nutritious food. Her video is endorsed and carried by such notables as me, myself, uh, the permaculture activist, Acres USA, John Jevons, Ecology Actions, Premier Seed and Tool Company, Bountiful Gardens, SurvivalBlog.com, Alex Jones, the Weston Price Nutritional Foundation. She's been featured as a guest on a diversity of national radio shows, such as Coast to Coast AM, The Power Hour, and uh, The Patrick Timpins Show. She's, of course, been here with us many times before. And uh, Marjorie, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thank you so much, Jack. And, you know, you really have been my founding supporter, and I'm eternally grateful for that. You you were one of the first people to really see what we were doing and embrace it and, and really help us promote it. Well, it's easy to do. When somebody has something that you really think is great, it's easy to get behind it, push it, endorse it. And uh, if I didn't believe in it, I wouldn't have done it. So thank you for putting it out there because, uh, frankly, it was needed. There was a lot of people out there, I think, that were doing things similar to you, and they had blogs and videos and stuff, but to me they all felt like, look at me, look what I can do, and it wasn't breaking it down to the how. So that's what I've really loved about what you guys have done so far. Well, that, that was why we created it, because you know, I've read all the books, and I've gone to workshops, and I've gone to places, and, and, it just, and I've gone to a lot of places, and they had a lot of demonstration stuff, but I was like, I want to go to somebody who's living it and doing it and see... How it, you know how many steps is it away from the house to the barn, and what fencing did they use, and why did they put this here, and and those kind of things, and that that kind of wasn't there, and uh, and that's why we created it, and and also you know how do you do this because we are facing a crisis, and it's we are knee deep into it, and there are going to be people screaming here soon about their grocery bills, and and you're right, it is it's something that's needed, and we 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 put that together just for that purpose. Yeah, I mean, that's what we have you on kind of today's subject is why your grocery bill will double and what you can do about it. Um, you know, why do you feel that way? Why do you think we're going to see our, our, the cost of our food double? Uh, and and I, I think you mean that. Like, I think if anybody you've told somebody, well, it's going to double by 2025, they would be like, well, duh, of course it is. You mean in a relatively short period of time, right? I I mean, like within the you know next six months to a year. It's last year our food prices actually increased thirty percent. People may not realize it because they've been messing messing with the packaging, making the packaging look the same or smaller, but putting less quantity in, slightly raising price. You don't notice it, but it all adds up. It was about a thirty percent increase this year. And the thing is, is you know, you and I may be growing a lot of our own food or working with farmers markets, but the vast majority and the food prices in the world are set by agribusiness. 
and those are the big, you know, corn and soybeans and wheat. And all over the world, every every country has been having problems with production. The United States, we've had droughts, we've had flooding, the same with China, the same with Russia, South America, so you got Argentina, Brazil, the big producers there, Chile. They've all been having problems, either drought or flooding. Australia is another big one. For example, Russia last year went from being like the third largest exporter of wheat in the world to now being out on the open market trying to buy food for their people because they, they just had, they've just been in drought for so long. China is another big example. They, they, you know, used to be self-reliant in, in a lot of things like wheat or, or rice uh, or corn, but they're going out on the open market to buy it now. And part of that is their burgeoning middle class and the desire to eat meat and feeding corn to animals. But a lot of it is also got to do with they've been also, they're big enough. They have droughting, <laughs> drought and flooding all over the place just like we do, you know. Our own corn planting this year, I was just reading, um, things are not going well. Texas has been totally devastated by droughts. Texas is actually a big producer of wheat in the winter, and that, that whole crop is almost gone. Beef prices have made about the same, but it's that, that's we're heading up to a, a, a real thin rope on that because what it is is the ranchers are thinning down their herds because they can't afford to feed, so they're sending the, the cattle off to market, but they're not rebuilding their herds. And this has been going on for several years. We had a big two-year drought here in 2008, 2009, some people may remember. Uh, so we're looking at a lot of different places, lots of little things also. I mean, there was that, all that cropland was destroyed by that um, uh, tsunami in Japan. And, it, you know, it's not a big deal, but that's a chunk. That was a pretty good chunk for Japan. With the flooding we had, we just had 133,000 acres along the Mississippi that, you know, we destroyed volitionally because we wanted to save the other towns downstream. That's another chunk. You know, it's it's starting to add up, and food prices are going to be hit by the, basically the production is not able to meet the demand. Also, even the USDA, when the USDA says something like, well, our reserves are razor thin and we're very concerned, and that should be putting all the rest of us into alarm because they're kind of like, you know, the president or the Federal Reserve in terms of how they move markets when they say anything. So if they say anything even slightly bad, you want to amplify that pretty big that we're in pretty deep trouble so there, there, there's huge pressure on that. We also, the other big factor, so we've got weather is causing problems with crop production. The food we eat is basically oil. We as a species have learned how to convert fossil fuels into mostly corn, but every aspect of growing our conventional food supply involves fossil fuels. Uh, the planting of it, the, 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 the tending of it, they use that with all sorts of different kind of sprays, Roundup and, and all sorts of other fertilizers that they get out of basically out of natural gas or they're petroleum derived. Uh, the harvesting, of course, the processing and the packaging and the delivery, all of that is dependent on fossil fuel. So we're now up to where oil is, you know, $90 a barrel and we, hopefully it'll go down, but you know, let's look at the instability of the world and see how realistic that is. That $90 a barrel oil hasn't really hit the food prices yet, but that's going to be another factor. And as oil goes up, food is going to continue to go up. So we have two big factors there. One is the weather and the price of oil. And the third factor is our governments. Um, there are lots of governments that are starting to say, hey, we don't have enough food. We're not growing enough. Let's put tariffs on this or let's um, you know, not involve trade anymore. We're only going to buy. We're not going to sell. Uh, and that's affecting markets and in addition to the other governmental act activities such as um, they're doing a lot of crazy regulation. I'm sure you've talked about it on your show, really hampering farmers and small farmers and 
hampering the the local food movement. Did Did you hear about this new thing that just came out? Um, I just saw it today. I haven't read the executive order yet, but this new executive order um, that Obama signed that gives the federal government this supposed insight and suggestion uh, to rural communities throughout the United States, uh, specifically in regard to agricultural land. I don't know if you've maybe dug into that yet or not. No, no, I haven't. No. It's, it's, I don't want to say too much yet because I'm big on let's vet everything out, but what really concerns me about it is the list of the people on this community or on this committee to oversee rural America are like, you know, it's like the head of the Department of Defense, the head of the Department of Agriculture you would expect, but Homeland Security, all these other people thrown into this thing. And it doesn't specifically say what they're going to do, but it basically says for oversight and input, as in let's stimulate rural, because what they're saying is even where there's been some recovery in the urban environments, rural America is way behind. And I just see this as like an invitation to come in and tell them, well, this isn't as green as we'd like it to be. And they don't mean green the way you and I do, of course. They mean green uh, in their version of carbon or, or what have you. Um, and it's okay to throw chemicals on the ground, but you know it, it depends on what the exhaust of your combine is. It has to be a certain way or something like that. Anyway, I don't want like I said, if you haven't done it yet either, I don't want to go too deep into it yet. But it just came across my desk today, and it's it, it's it's somewhat alarming. And all I know is this. If the government touches anything, it doesn't get more efficient. It gets less efficient. When things are less efficient, they cost more. Uh, but there's freedom aspects there, too, I'm concerned about. But, again, I don't like to touch stuff like that till I know. Well, you know, uh, governments are deeply concerned about food, and they know this is a crisis coming. I mean, the riots in Egypt were originally started because of, you know, food. And, and, and a lot of the trouble in the East, in the Middle East, was because of food riots that started out. People were not able to buy well, they couldn't afford it, you know, and they've been having the, the same problems that we're starting to look at. And, and that was what started a lot of that trouble and sparked that whole series of basically revolutions that are going on over there. Um, you know, we're, the government is this huge entity, and I'm, I think they're aware that, you know, things are going to be changing and shutting down, and they're doing what they need to do to pre- prepare for themselves. Another thing that will probably or or may possibly happen fairly soon is uh, price controls. I mean, all of us laugh like our government will never do that, but Nixon tried it in the 70s. You know, I mean, it's not that far away from our thing. And then, of course, during Roosevelt and the Depression did it. And when the, the Supreme Court said some things he didn't like, he said, fine, keep ruling against me and I'll put more. Ju-. He said, I can't overturn you. But what I can do is increase the size of the court, put more justices on there and balance the court the way I want it. I mean, so there's precedent for this stuff. There, there definitely is. But so the, the, you've got the three big factors is the governmental world is is definitely not helping the people in all the different ways that it causes hindrances. The price of oil is is up and most likely to go up more, and that's that basically is the cost of food. We eat oil, so the cost of oil, cost of food, same thing as it goes up. And then the other is just the severe weather. You know, people say, do you believe in climate change or not? I don't care. The fact is, is we're having droughts, we're having flooding. I'm dealing with all kinds of erratic weather patterns. As a gardener, gardeners all over the world are, farmers are too, and you just can't produce under those conditions, and yet we're still increasing our population. We are headed into a big problem. And I believe that, yes, your grocery bill, the other factor in there also is the monetary supply here in the United States. They're just printing more and more and more of it. We're definitely heading into an inflationary, hyperinflationary scenario. I think that doubling your grocery bill is, 
is is I'm I'm willing to bank on it. You know, your grocery bill will double, and I hope it only doubles. Is what I tell people because realistically, this we've just got too many forces that really can't be stopped or controlled that are pointing in that direction. And and what can you do? I mean, really. And this is the same situation back you know a decade or so ago when we and and you've heard my story and probably a lot of your listeners have. I used to be um, I used to run a small professional real estate investment company and nothing really huge, but we were making a good living and we and we were very good at it. Uh, and then I, I we saw that the real estate market was going to collapse, was going to crash, and we managed to get out and we get all our investors out. And fortunately, just barely in time, I didn't end up <laughs> after that whole journey of building that business and taking it apart. I ended up with almost a little bit less than I started, but it was a fun ride. But when I looked at that, I said, what other things? You know, I mean, real estate going up is just almost like kind of a fact of life in the American psyche, right? I'm like, what other things could collapse? And we started to look at, and we said, you know, food is going to become a huge issue, and that's why we were so passionate about learning how to grow food, because it's also the one thing that you can do something about. I can't do anything about harp and weather manipulation if that's happening or not i i can't really do a whole lot about the u.s government yeah i sign petitions and i call my senator what the heck you know what you know i help but it's not i'm not i can't change that you know the wars the spending on the military or the inflation I, those are things i can't deal with but i can go out in my garden and start growing some food i can you know i can raise some chickens and start collecting eggs and you know the, what the what the incredible thing for me was and this is so funny because just after we, my husband never really liked the real estate business that much. He was not, it's not really where his heart was. He was kind of glad when we closed the whole thing up. And he said, hon, you know, there's an old saying, and this kind of summarized my whole experience with that money-making thing was he said, all true wealth comes from the ground. And I, it just hit me. It just hit me like a load of bricks. Oh, my gosh, you know. Growing food, it, you know, that really is true wealth. You're getting nutrition, you're getting exercise, your your body is happy and healthy, and that is, you know, that is wealth. <laughs> yeah, you know, that makes me think of a story. I don't remember which emperor it was, but there was a Roman emperor who eventually decided he'd had enough being the emperor and took a bunch of land and went off into the countryside and basically retired. He wasn't forced out or anything. And his successor came in and did a really crappy job. And eventually uh, they sent word to him and said, we want you back. And uh, he said he didn't want to come back. And the messenger asked why. And he showed him two cabbages. He said, these two cabbages represent that I've done more than I did the entire time that I was the Caesar. Exactly. And, and that that is that is uh, I I'm not even sure if that was true because it was told to me by a listener. I've never vetted it, but I, I believe there's truth in it. it. It can be true. It can be a metaphor. I'm not sure if somebody out there knows who that was. Uh, please let us know in the show notes today. But that 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 stuck with me from that point on. I don't even know why I haven't vetted it yet. Maybe I just had time. But I, I you know with the set that, that that is totally my story. I mean, I I can tell you now. You know, I go out there and I'm picking fresh food and I feel much much wealthier than than I ever have you know and also as a woman you know feeding my family really food that I know is really nurturing not like some Campbell's commercial or something like that or any of that kind of stuff I'm talking about real food and then you know seeing in their eyes the sparkle in their eyes and 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 they're just more alert and and you, you like you know there really is a big difference between kids that eat processed food and then kids that eat a lot of homegrown food and 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 eat food that has really some some substance to it. Uh, so there's it, it's a whole different world. And and that was what really surprised me. And we kind of got into this thing out of the 
out of the fear and, and shock and awe and, and, and kind of running away from things aspect. But what I've found is I'm just totally delighted by it. It's so fulfilling and, and um, rewarding and, and very challenging. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna, you know, slide on that one, but, um, there's been so much good that's come out. I wouldn't go back. You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want the world to be any other way. I'm, I'm. You know, I always see myself growing my own food supply. Well, let's talk a little bit about the solution for the the, the average person. Then um, we'll talk about some of the things you did and how they can be scaled. Uh, and, and I think you know, a lot, there's a big focus on scaling down, and we'll probably do that today because your operation is fairly large compared to somebody that would maybe have a half acre, quarter acre to deal with. But I also believe that your methods could easily be scaled up. So someone that maybe wanted to try a new type of uh, of farm could actually scale up what you're doing uh, and maybe someone that's sitting there doing monoculture on a thousand acres might break off 30 and give this thing a shot uh, but what can the average person do to kind of get started in this and start putting some food on their own table you know the very first thing to do I would say and this is my very first suggestion is start small start small now we do have a lot of land uh, and really the heart of my food production system really is just like what would go in a backyard. It's a garden and, and a rabbitry, and that's really the heart of what produces most things. Uh, but when we started out, there's a great story. My husband's grandmother, Nanny, uh, had an acre, and she grew up, of course, you know, she learned how to sow seeds and all that from her parents and just that whole tradition that, that we've completely lost. And so, so Dave, when he thought about, you know, oh, Marjorie's going to get into the garden, he plows me up an acre and, and, cause that's what Nanny had and that's what he, you know, what his experience was. Um, and, uh, you know, we had an acre of weeds and frustration. I mean, it really, it just, that is just way too much because, you know, you have to be Nanny before you could do that. So what I really recommend is starting small. And that's great news. I mean, if you're in the city or if you're in a condominium or something like that, of course you're wanting to get out. But start learning how to grow food and that may mean just a couple of plants on a window. You know, if you've got a backyard, just start with one bed, really, you know, a, a, a four by, by ten or, or something like that, you know, 40, 50 square feet or 100 square feet. Don't go crazy because you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have failures. Uh, you might as well have them be small and not, not, you know, have invested a huge amount of time and energy into something big that doesn't work. Uh, also, you know, and people, you know, I have a girlfriend named Maria, and um, when we first started out, I was helping her out, and, and she didn't have a lot of time or, or any room. And I said, look, just get a couple of herbs in the window. Get some basil, get some rosemary, and get some oregano. Those guys are pretty industrial strength. And the first thing you're going to be doing is you're going to be, and, and the other advice for that, by the way, is get as big a pot as you can so it has a lot of soil in it, and that way it will be more forgiving of your erratic watering and attention, you know. <laughs> but the first thing you're going to be wanting to do is just start notice those plants every day. Kind of put them by, you know, the sink or somewhere where you're going to see them. And you're starting that lifestyle habit of paying attention to your food supply, no matter how small it is. And you'll be doing this if you've got a garden bed out in your yard. You want to kind of get in the habit of, you know, in the morning when you're sipping your morning coffee or something, just go take a quick stroll, look at the plants, see how they're doing. And, and uh, you know, you're starting to notice, oh, my gosh, when I don't water them, they droop and they look like this, you know. Or, you know, I gave them a shot of this. I know Marjorie said not to use chemicals. I went ahead and put some miracle Grow on them, you know, and now they're all turning yellow, and, and that's what it looks like when they got too much fertilizer. Or, you know, it hasn't been in the sun in a long time, and now they're looking all pale green. Or, you know, it's gotten too much sun, and their, their edges or the leaves are frying and turning up. So you're starting to see 
um, how plants respond to different things and what kind of needs they have and you're starting to develop a relationship. You know, even if you're just doing that in a windowsill in your kitchen because that's all you have time for or if it's just a little garden bed out in your backyard, those things that you're learning totally scale up to when later on maybe you're managing a couple of acres in an orchard or something like that. You know what? And I completely agree with you. I have some friends, uh, Brian and Kelly Black. Uh, Brian, of course, runs the ITS Tactical blog. And like when we first met, he came over to my house and I had like, I had like 10 four by eight beds in, in my vegetable garden there. And they were beautiful. And I worked on the soil for five years. I could stick my hand down in them up to my elbow. And he was like, wow, I want to do this, but it's so much. I said, just go put together a little, one little four by four bed, plant some stuff in it. You know, and he told me that first year they had, uh, you know, a few tomatoes every week. They had some, I gave them some, uh, Trombuccino zucchini, of course, which, which trellises, so that made more space efficient use. Uh, they had peppers, they had some, some, uh, it was later in the year, so I gave them some Swiss chard plants, cause the lettuces and all would be suffering in the sun. And that one little patch put a lot of, now, they're not gonna live on that. But it added so much to what they were doing, and now they're trying to figure out where they can fit another one in and things like that. So the small start, I think, is a, a great way to kind of – and it's it's easier to fix things you screw up, and that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, and the other the other part of that story with Maria, so I got her started with these three little herbs, and she's, you know, she's kind of getting into it, and she loves her little plants. And um, she's, Marjorie, I'm talking to her a month later. She said, you are not going to believe this. And I said, what? She said, you know, I'm feeding my family the same old slop. These are the same recipes I've been using forever, but I'm putting a little fresh basil in there, putting a little fresh rosemary in or, you know, and she said, they think, you know, my husband asked me and said, hey, hon, are you getting all new recipes? And my kids are diving for seconds. And, you know, she said, it's really, fresh herbs just make a huge difference. And, uh, you know, so even if you're the diehard survivalist and someday you're with your group and you've been eating beans and rice for a month, but you know how to grow a little basil or oregano, and that's all you know how to do, but you could totally contribute to a group with just a small impact like that. So don't don't berate just starting small and, and, and doing something little. You're, you're definitely that's, right. And, I mean, the one that my wife has latched on is to cilantro. You know how, like, a, if you get a good old southern hillbilly, they'll fry anything. And if you tell them there's a new plant or a new game animal, like, can you fry it? My wife's gotten like that with cilantro. We'll come up with something new to eat. She's like, can I put cilantro on? I'm like, well, you can put cilantro on anything you want, but maybe you shouldn't put it on everything. But... The, 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 it, I think what it was is her experience with cilantro had always been that watered down crap from the store, and you start growing it and you got it fresh and it just you know just came in from 15 minutes ago and all of a sudden it's a totally different experience. Cilantro in particular is wonderful because it helps to clean out metal heavy metal toxins in your body and it's just a, an incredible rejuvenate. I love cilantro too. It's also around here and in most places. It's pretty easy to grow and most likely will reseed itself each year. So that's another great – I love plants. Oh, you can't kill it. I, I used to cut the grass down in Texas, and I would go like, what's that smell? And I'm like, that's cilantro. And it was just stuff from the garden that was growing, and it was too low to see yet. But when you cut the grass, you know, it's a very distinctive smell. If you, uh, you give it a good environment, you'll have it forever. And it's a pretty tough plant, too. I mean, it, it is. really did well, yeah. So, uh, so just the other real important aspect of starting small is – Quite frankly, our food supply over the decades, there's nothing in it. There really isn't. The nutritional content is going down and down and down and down and down. And someday I've got to do all the background research. But the, the labeling laws are very misleading. They're based on nutritional content of vegetables back in the 1960s or something. 
um, it, 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 you know, even when I was growing up as a kid, I, the old the older people were saying, "Gosh, you know, a tomato doesn't just taste like a tom- it doesn't taste right anymore." And what they were noticing was the loss in nutritional content even back then. So there's not much. So you growing your own food, and this will also lead into why I highly recommend start a compost pile, which is going to be our next tip. But when you're growing your own food, you're getting nutrition like you've never gotten before. Uh, and we need, our bodies need that. We really need that. I'm not a big fan of synthetic vitamins and that kind of stuff. Uh, but growing your own food, you know, having some, you know, getting your own spinach or your own cilantro or your lettuce or, you know, the different things you're growing, you're getting a, a huge amount of a nutritional boost. So just from the nutritional aspect alone and a small patch, like you said, no, you're not going to get a lot of calories and you're not going to be self-sufficient on a four by four. But you could really be adding significantly to your nutritional intake. Yeah, the nutritional intake is huge. And I mean, it, I think here's the problem. Modern agriculture has looked at the basic things that a plant needs to grow. Not necessarily thrive, not necessarily reproduce, but be seeded this year and grow. And it needs water, it needs sun, and it needs you know three main nu- nutrients, ni- ni- nitrogen, uh, potassium, and uh, uh, phosphorus, phosphorus, right? Yeah. So I get fem- chemical fertilizer with those three things, and I, and I pump water out of a creek or use some kind of an irrigation source to put it under the sun, and it'll grow, and it will grow. There's some thunder rumbling if you're wondering. But it'll it'll grow. Um, but that earth itself has all these micronutrients and minerals that are down in there. And the plant may not thrive without them, but I can make it grow. But those root systems go down there and mine those minerals. And if we are growing those things apart from that, we're going to notice a taste and a quality difference. And then if we dump herbicide on it and genetically modify it, it all gets worse from there. But even if we do things the way we did, let's say, before we started spraying soybeans with Roundup, we go back to 1985, um, we're still in this state of we're creating a sterile sponge out of our farmland and then saturating it with three primary nutrients and leaving all these micronutrients and, and minerals out of the equation. And we go into monoculture so we don't have the comfrey that's going down two feet and pulling those minerals up for us anymore. Or, or even the fact that our food pyramid is designed by agri- agribusiness, and the easiest. <laughs> Did you see the new one? They don't have a pyramid anymore. Now they got a plate. Why not? I know there's a plate. They it's paid nine million dollars for a plate. That was the cost of the the the, uh, the new graphic. Nine million dollars for a plate that looks like a pie chart. <laughs> but a lot of that food plate now it's grains and that's because grains are easily mechanized and it's real easy to grow these grains with chemicals and machines than it is to grow you know other foods which all require a lot more manual labor to be involved in them so that's an, another reason that that you know but those things those foods are not necessarily the healthiest foods for our body well, if you look at the food pyramid and you look at the back of a, ba- a bag of cow feed um, the cattle feed and the food pyramid are almost identical in their allocation of nutrients, which cattle feed is designed to make a little calf into a great big steer real, real quick so I can kill them and eat them. Um, it's not designed for a human being to grow and to thrive. Well, and so where we're going with all this is, you know, so um, I tell people the other thing. I say, so start small. Just get a few plants. Just to smart, start a small plot in your backyard or whatever you've got. Um a roof if you're in an apartment or something, you know, whatever. Just get started somewhere. And then the next thing you want to do is start a compost pile. And people are like, Marjorie, why do you want to start a compost pile? I'm like, look, it all comes from the soil. The more rich and fertile and good your soil is, most of the vegetables that we like to eat 
have been, uh, they're, they're designed specifically, they need to be in a rich, fertile soil. There's a very few exceptions to that, but most of them, like the carrots and the tomatoes, you know, the, all the things that we normally like, uh, lettuces and spinaches, they, they want a nice, deep, fertile soil, and you get that fertility by, by composting. Uh, so starting a compost is the very next thing, a, a compost pile. And the neat thing is, and I have, this is, I am living proof of this, so the, the, you've got really good, rich, nutritious soil. Those plants are going to be much more healthy and robust. And when you eat those plants, you're going to be much more healthy and robust. All true wealth comes from the ground. So growing your own compost, making your own compost out of scraps or what you can scavenge or whatever you can find, and compost is pretty easy to do. It's a pretty simple process, but that's the next big thing, you know, to take a step and, and, and start making some compost. People ask me, and I started out, I'm telling you, I had the whole, I was doing the engineering business, you know, professional world for most of my life, so I don't have a lot of agriculture experience. And I was on my knees crying in my garden at the losses of plants that I was having continuously, you know, uh, just, you know, really in tears because here I was, you know, doing all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in this and that and the other and then I can't get a tomato to grow. How humiliating. Um, and the biggest thing that I found was, like most gardeners, I just, you know, the seed packet said plant the seed and water it and then come back in 90 days and harvest it. This, but they didn't, you know, I said did, and all we had was sand. <laughs> you know, there was nothing in that soil, right? Those plants all died, you know, or they really barely made it. Well, even if they do sort of make it, because you don't have any of that organic matter, the first time you go for a day without rain in a 100-degree temperature, it, it kills it. Yes, exactly. Or the first time, like I had broccoli, and the first time we had a, a, you know, a minor freeze, the broccoli all died, and I said, hey, wait a minute, broccoli is a cold-weather plant. But I didn't have, and then I went down the road. My neighbor, about a mile down the road, has his garden. I mean, this thing is just to die for, this beautiful, beautiful, lush green vegetables. And his broccoli is like, woohoo! And I'm like, what is the difference? And, well, he's, he's gardening in two feet of composted horse manure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would have it killed you when that was happening to you. If you'd seen the pictures I posted like three years ago, I had broccoli that literally was, we had freezing rain. And the freezing rain coated the broccoli, and it froze solid. And then the next day, the sun came out and melted it off. A few of the leaves turned yellow. The plant went right back to growing and produced better than it's ever produced before. Um, and it, when you're when you're not, you haven't figured that out yet. You look at something like that and go, "Why me? Why can't I do the same thing?" And it's it seems complicated, but it's really about following rules, right? It's, it's about having that fertility and that nutrition, and I'll tell you how that extends into my personal life. So I'm, I'm a native of Florida, and I've always been, you know, like I like to be warm. I am not those kind of people that like snow, you know, and I like if it was getting 74, 75 degrees, I was reaching for a sweater, you know. I'm like most indoor building environments, I was just cold, and so always had a very hard tolerance to, to cold. And And now after eating so well, you know, I really don't mind jumping into our, our, our swimming pool in the middle of winter. I mean, I'm totally fine walking around barefoot in 40-degree weather. I'm, you know, it, I, I am living proof that really, and the same, it's got to do with, the, you know, the plants got really healthy and strong and were able to tolerate these massive temperature changes, and so have I, too. It's been incredible, the, the experience that I've felt, and it, it'll happen for everybody else. The real key is nutrition. It really is the getting the right minerals and vitamins that are in our bodies are so depleted because most of us have been, you know, dealing with conventional agriculture. 
uh, you would be amazed at the turnaround in your in your own life when you start eating very well, eating eating food that's nutritious and healthy. You know, I want to bounce something off because you're like me. You're big on the all-natural methods. We certainly are not going to be saturating our crops and pesticides. Uh, but something occurred to me this week that I really had never thought about before, and I'm sure this is widely known by every, um, you know, uh, bio, wildlife biologist and things like that. But what I thought of is this, that for there to be a balance in the world of predator and prey, the prey must always outnumber the predator. Okay, if I have an equal number of lions and wildebeests, then the lions can only live for maybe a week because they pretty much all need one every day. And if they eat all the wildebeests, they have no more wildebeests to eat. Well, when we spray pesticides on our food, not only is there the toxic effects and all, not only do we kill off the beneficials, but since there's so much less predator than there is prey, we kill them both. And then in conventional garden, we don't put any habitat there for the predator. So the predators that are left that are outside of our sphere of death we've created, they kind of look over there, and there's none for them to eat, and there's no place for them to hide, so they go somewhere else. But once our toxins wear off, the prey come back and look, and there's no predators, no place for the predators to hide, and it's let's let's have a freestyle attack. And I've got neighbors up the road from me that I have to kind of slowly edge into this that have a big, beautiful garden, but they're being just destroyed by squash bugs. And I thought it was the vine borers, which broke my heart because I thought I finally got away from it. It wasn't. It's the plain old squash bugs. And I've had not really a lot of problem controlling them, but what I know is everybody that sprayed them ends up with a billion of them. You know, uh, 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 there's a, a sweet older Texan named Malcolm Beck, who's just this, he's kind of like we call him the grandfather of organics, and he's always been doing organics in Texas and a big proponent of it and has some wonderful, wonderful information and some great books. But I was talking to Malcolm, and he said, you know, he wrote this book called The Texas Bugs, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. <laughs> I love that title. But he says, Marjorie, look, there are, like of all the insects out there, only about 3% of them are actually bad or damaging to your crops. 97% of them are beneficial or predators to the bad ones. And if you see an outbreak uh, of insects going on in your thing, uh, you know, one thing to do is just wait and see if some predators to them will come along. But the other thing I do is I, I encourage insects. I, you know, if there's some extra wildflowers or some weeds growing and, and I don't need, you know, to use that space, I let it grow and flower because I know it's going to attract pollinators and I know it's going to attract the insects. It's going to be a habitat for them. I try to encourage a huge diversity of insects all around, which means that, you know, I lose a little bit to insects, but not very much at all, and the whole thing is naturally sustaining. Um, one year I had a problem with um some kind of really cute little shiny beetle looked like some kind of astronaut beetle. It was really shiny all over my sweet potatoes. And I'm like, oh, because this is, this again goes back to that fertility thing. I said, oh, you know, if the, the, the function of a predator is to take out the diseased or the weak of the species. The function of a predator is to make sure that the best genetic material moves forward. And that's regardless of whether you're talking about wolves taking down the, the diseased or weak caribou, or whether you're, you're talking about insects in your garden taking out the genetically or bad, the weaker, inferior plants. And that's what their function is. If your plants are healthy and strong, they are naturally not going to have any insect problems. I, I can pretty much coexist with all of them except one. And I don't know if you've had any problem with these, and I just mentioned them, but the squa uh, squash vine borer is an insect creature that I have a very hard time coexisting with. 
And uh, it's been my nemesis in, in the Arlington area, and I hope I've kind of created some separation from the dadgone things. But have you dealt with them, or have you helped anybody deal successfully with them? Because this is one that, like, I get from all kinds of listeners, and it, it, the email goes like this, Jack, I planted, you know, the XYZ brand of squash, and the vines were beautiful and big, and, and all of a sudden I came out and they looked wilted, and I thought it was just from, you know, being too hot out. So I gave them a little bit of water, and they looked a little bit better. The next day they were dead, and I examined them, and the vines are completely hollowed out, and then there's these little white maggots in there, and that's the damn vine borers, and I, that's the one I don't have an answer for yet. Yeah, you know, I've just never had a had a problem with that. I'll tell you what I did with those beetles on the sweet potatoes, though. As the first case, as the first line of defense, is I went ahead and let the chickens in, and the chickens will eat up all the insects that they can find. And then the next thing I did was I went ahead and hit it with some some liquid seaweed. I don't normally buy a lot of soil amend- amendments, but I did, and that just got that plant to- those to- plants totally back in alignment with what they needed and and got them awesome. real good nourishment. And I never had an insect problem with them again. But no, I haven't had a problem with the squash vine borer. And when I when I do, I'll let you know, and then we'll figure it out. <laughs> I think it's most. I think that it, it's worse in these urban environments because you can do everything right, but if all your neighbors are doing everything wrong, you only can go so far. And if there's a high population of something, and the big problem with them is, of course. Maybe a predator might take out the adult, but the adult's a very large moth. It almost looks like a large wasp, uh, but it is a moth. And the, the 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 pupa stage, which is what does the damage, is inside the stem. So it's not really accessible to predators. There are some nematodes that you're supposed to be able to inject into the vine themselves, but it's neither cost-effective nor effective. I tried it just to see, and it, it didn't work. That's too much work. Yeah. One thing I have heard of, and I actually haven't had this problem, but I've heard about it, there's a, a variety of squash called tatume, I believe, T-A-T-U-M-E, and I know they sold it at Echo Seeds. Echo Seeds was out of, I think, Fort Myers, Florida. And they said it was resistant to the squash vine borer because it has a very small, it has a smaller vine. Oh, cool. Make that nice, juicy interior part that they're going in there to eat. The, the only thing I've found that's worked is I grew butternuts on top of gravel. And between the heat and the natural resistance of butternut, they were uh, they did fairly well. They eventually got infested, but they managed to to survive anyway. Um, other than that, I had, I had tremendous problems with them. But well, let's move on from there because I don't want to turn it into the squash vine borer show. Um, but because I, I mean, one of the things I wanted to bring out while we had you on the show is you guys do an awful lot with livestock as well, and mostly livestock that a person could have in fairly suburban environments: rabbits, chickens. The geese might be a bit munch in the backyard in a, you know, somewhere in HOA or something and they're honking, but chickens and rabbits have traditionally been done a lot in suburban environments. And there's, uh, you use those for fertility and you use them uh, for protein and you use them for some other stuff too, right? Absolutely. And yeah, again, it goes back to that fertility. We have, um, we have an eight by 12, uh, we have an eight cage rabbit hutch, which is about 20 feet long by about two and a half feet wide. And, and there are eight hutches in there. Have a, one buck and three breeding does typically is what we have going on. And even in the heat of Texas, you can't breed for about five months because maybe six months because it's too hot here. Even with that, I'm still able to produce 80 to 90 rabbits a year out of that system. That is, and I just did the math on this a little while ago, that is the protein requirements for our family of four here. This is two adults, two children, a boy 12 and a girl 10. That is a huge, huge 
you know, nugget to be able to accomplish that. And it's fairly easy to raise rabbits. They're very quiet. Your neighbors are never going to even know about it if that's a concern, whereas, you know, chickens can be an issue with some cities. And it's a fantastic system. And there's a whole bunch of other reasons why the rabbits are so synergistic with the garden. And one is, of course, the cages are up underneath it. They're dropping their pellets, and there's a compost pile right there happening all the time, and the rabbits are continually contributing to that. The other thing is, and this is the real value, is like what is the number one pain that nobody wants to do in the garden, and it's weeding. You know, you know, Bermuda grass. You know, talk about a nemesis. You know, it's it's it's. You know, I'm thinking it might be the plant incarnation of the of the new world order or something, but it's out there to get you. But I have a totally different relationship with Bermuda grass now. Is it's free rabbit food. So I go out in the morning to feed the rabbits. Part of what I'm doing is I'm going around the garden and I'm collecting weeds. And actually, sometimes I see some grass growing. I'm like, you guys got to grow a little bit more before I pull you up. You're only a mouthful now. If I wait next week, you're going to actually be a meal for some little rabbit. So uh, it totally, and it just amazes me how it just totally turns around that whole chore and drudgery of weeding into like, I'm getting free food, I'm getting free, you know, rabbit feed. And it, it really does make a difference. So the rabbits are, are a real crucial system. And in our system, I, I feed about half of what, I, you know, the weeds in my garden and a little bit of cut grass and some hay from around the farm, which is not a lot of room and could be done anywhere, uh, is about half of the food supply for my rabbits. Uh, and the other half, I just get pellets, and that's just because you know I'm living a modern life. Some mornings you got to just dump those pellets and go. You don't have time to get the weeds for the rabbits, you know. But it it very easily could turn into a completely sustainable project, and that's what I love. By the way, for for people who are interested, I grow about half of my own food, maybe maybe more, sometimes less. Uh, but what's important to me is I could, and and I don't want to grow 100% because I do have a busy life, as does everybody. But if anything happened, I can switch on to 100% pretty quickly. In fact, I've got the tools and materials to expand almost immediately, and I'm kind of prepping some areas for other growing areas that if I need it, I can do it almost immediately. And that is security. That is social security right there, you know, really knowing that that I can do this if need be at any You time. know, and I, I think it's very difficult to do without animals, and you, you can chew all the granola you want and sit around campfires and and and, and pretend that, you know, the modern world is all bad and, and, and live the hippie lifestyle you want and believe that you can live on, on, you know, vegetables, but the reality is that uh, protein has a place in our diet as far as I'm concerned, but beyond that, if you're in an environment with a lot of grass, human beings cannot eat grass and convert it to protein with any efficiency whatsoever. But a rabbit can. And even if we look at something like a chicken, even if we're not even, let's say we are a, not a vegan but a vegetarian and we don't eat meat, the chicken produces an egg. And that is just another form of protein conversion. The chicken's able to take material that we don't do a good job of converting to protein, consume that, produce wonderful waste that we can use for fertility to make more vegetation, and then, you know, put out that egg, which is an incredible protein source, prepackaged and ready to go. And if we take that out of the equation, we lose the fertility, we lose the protein, we lose the efficiency of conversion, we lose a lot. That's it exactly, yes. And for all those reasons is why you need to have small livestock. When I, when I started this whole journey, I was actually exploring the raw vegan diet and I was, you know, so only eating fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, all in a raw, condition and when I started to look at this lifestyle and what might happen and I realized you know I'm not going to be able to grow this stuff and it turns out growing a vegan or a vegetarian diet even 
is really, really difficult. It's a lot more work. And, and since then, I've been able, you know, I've had the privilege and honor of being able to travel around and visit a lot of other farms and sustainability sites and permaculture sites all over the U.S. and as well as internationally. And I was in Costa Rica for two real long research trips because actually I wanted to live somewhere where chocolate grows on trees. Uh, but my family's not moving there, but I had a great time there. But I was shocked to find, you know, I mean, here I am in the tropics. I mean, fruit is falling off the trees uneaten everywhere. I mean, food everywhere. You only really only need one acre for a cow there. The grass grows so lush. I'm like, this has got to be the place, you know, where you could live a, a vegetarian diet and it would be fine. And I was shocked to find other people that had been there for 20 years, 20-year vegetarians, they had goats and chickens and rabbits and cows. And they sure. Said, you know, it's easier to raise meat products than it is fruits and vegetables. <laughs> because, again, they can convert things that we don't have to use agricultural to produce into something that's usable by us. Um, I, I had a, a discussion one time. It wasn't really an argument. It was a very fair discussion with someone who was uh, a plain and simple vegan, and uh, she was explaining to me how there's all these environmental concerns and how her tofu burgers and all were so much better for the environment than my evil methane-producing beef. And if we just left everything alone, I said, well, first of all, if we left everything alone, there'd be millions and millions and millions of buffalo out producing the same methane and, and improving our prairies all the time. Second of all, my beef came from a Texas prairie, free range, uh, where that cow just runs around with all his other cows on, on thousands and thousands of acres and eats what naturally occurs and never spends any time on a feedlot. Your soy burger came from a square of probably a thousand acres of infertile land uh, that was sprayed with Roundup and, and, and all this other stuff that was done. So this environmental thing, and I'm not putting down vegetarians because I understand the choice that some people want to make. And, all, and I'll admit some people will do better on that diet. I certainly... I would be miserable. So I could be healthy and miserable or healthy and happy. I'll choose the other one. But it's not as cut and dry as the mainstream has led us to believe. And it, it, it drives me crazy that you get people that don't believe the mainstream media about like 90% of the things, and then they just point to them for the other 10% of something they hold on to their life almost like a religion. And to me, if we just accept the fact that we need to make animals part of this, things become easier. And at some point, that may mean slaughter. Now, you presented that in your DVD, uh, and I thought it was a very unique presentation. Um, I thought it was really special the way that you did that, and can you talk a little bit about like coming to terms with that, making your family okay with the fact that, you know, we raised this thing, we petted it, it was kind of cute, it has this little sniffly nose, and now it's on the plate mixed up with some squash and a casserole. Uh, how, how, did you, how did you create that bridge, and, and what made you include it and demonstrate that in the DVD. Yeah, that was actually what was my first own revelation was now I I first went through that journey. As I said, I started out as a raw vegan, and I realized that, you know, it was a hard realization that you had to grow meat. And I said, if I'm going to, if I'm going to eat meat, then I want, I want to fully participate in this whole process. And in fact, through that whole thing, I've come to a much deeper appreciation of life than I would have ever reached any other way. Uh, and yeah, and I, you know, we used to do the whole one day workshop, which is, and which is why we ended up making the DVD, because the, the workshop was just getting so booked, and, and it was just too much, and I couldn't, you know, you, I couldn't keep doing that at the pace that it was going on, there was so much demand for it, so we made the DVD. And when I did the one day workshop, you know, I realized there was such a crucial point, nobody knows, I mean, we don't do that in our culture anymore. And, and, and I found that a lot of people were actually coming to the workshop because we were gonna, we were gonna butcher a rabbit. <laughs> 
and uh it was very interesting that, that that was, you know, people want to get back in touch with that. And even vegetarians, and I've had a lot of comments from vegetarians who've seen the segment, and they say, you know, we really get that you did that so respectfully. And even though I'm a vegetarian, I don't want to do that. I can now because I've seen, you know, what you've shown, and it's done beautifully. Um, and my kids, you know, my daughter is totally cool with it. She raises the babies when they're little babies. She plays with them and names them. They're almost all named Jumpy and gravy and something else, you know, spotty, whatever. And she plays with them. She takes them on the trampoline and teaches them how to jump. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and and then when and then when they get older, she knows, you know, this is this is what's going to happen. And she's in the barn playing around, and uh, you know, I'll cut them open. And she'll, mommy, is that the heart or those the intestines? You know, she's learning anatomy and all that. She's totally fine with it, and she understands the whole process from front end. My son, on the other hand, the one with the guns and the video games that are so violent and all that, he can't stand the thought of me killing those rabbits. You know, he loves them when they're babies and they're growing up, and then he just he just can't. I'm 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 an evil murderer as far as he's concerned, but he knows the reality of it. I mean, he loves the enchiladas and he loves the rabbit stew. And, and I've had the enchiladas, Marjorie, and I can understand why he loves those. Those are outstanding. I'm, you were the first person that ever made me rabbit enchiladas, and, and that was awesome. They're good, yeah. It's a great, it's a great food source. It it really is. So, you know, that's how both of them. You know, they both react differently. And kids, you never know what you get when you get one. Um, but the fact is, is that's that's what we eat. And whether whether you get it in a cellophane wrap thing in the grocery store or not, it went through some process where someone killed it. Absolutely. It, what I'd like you to talk about a little bit now, because you know a lot of people out there, I mean, chickens are the big thing with homesteaders today. And a lot of people think they're going to raise them for meat. And you made a decision to go with rabbits for meat, and I'm sure a chicken or two occasionally ends up in the pot. Um, but in general, your main meat source from your production is from the rabbits, and chickens are used more for their fertility and their eggs. Can you talk about why you made that choice? Absolutely, and it's often surprised me how people, long-term people that have lived out in the country a long time and should know better think, oh, I'm going to raise chickens where i got a chicken in the pot every week. And I said, well, let's stop and think about the math on that. That means you're probably going to need to have a flock about the size of 50 chickens because, you know, you got to raise them and you got to have uh, breeding people, you know, breeding stock, and then you got to bring them up. And you, if you want to have one a week that, you know, you got to, that's 52 weeks in a year, you know, you kind of have to have a good-sized flock in order to be able to produce a chicken a week. If you're going to have a size of 50 flock chicken, you got to feed them. And you're going to have to go out and buy some commercial grain somewhere unless you're going to grow all that grain yourself. If you're going to grow all that grain yourself, you might as well just eat the grain. So the chickens compete too much with human needs on that scale. But I highly, highly recommend if you've got, even if you've got an acre, you could probably support, you know, even up to a dozen chickens that run around free range and just eat bugs and grass or whatever or whatever scraps you have and they'll do fine. You won't get huge commercial production, but you'll get reasonably consistent egg production throughout the year. There'll be time. And, and we can only eat so many freaking eggs. I mean that's the other thing. I know this guy, I'm gonna have twenty four chickens and they're gonna produce all the eggs. How many people you got? My two kids and my wife. I'm like, dude, you're gonna be throwing eggs at people. I mean you just you can only eat so many eggs. They do make good dog food though. They do. And and yes, we feed some to our dogs as a part of their dog food. But realistically, chickens are really good for eggs. And even if you're in a, in a backyard situation, small space, you know, two hens or three hens, 
you know, you'll you'll get an egg or two a day, and that's probably plenty for most people. But don't, you know, and then of course as they get older, if you have to replace them, then you eat them. But they're not really they're not really a good meat production animal just because they compete too much with human needs. Rabbits, on the other on on the other hand, are herbivores, and they like grasses, and they they like things that we just don't eat. They like the weeds in our gardens. They're much more compatible with us in terms of producing meat. So yeah, eggs, chickens for eggs are wonderful. And of course, you get the feathers, and and you know the all all the things that you can do with with chickens are delicious. Rabbit is pretty much the same meat, and um, and and uh, you to me, quieter, to me, it's tastier too, honestly. And, and more efficient, yeah. The other thing with caged raised rabbits is there it's going to be a tenderer meat, which is what people are more used to eating. You know, I raise, we raise our chickens or our turkeys, and they're free range. And quite frankly, it's a very different meat from meat that you get in the supermarket. The the, the muscles are much firmer and and stronger, and it, a little bit more chewier than the stuff that you're getting in the grocery stores, like almost flaccid compared to you know when you when you when you get a free range bird. So the caged raised rabbits are a meat that's a little bit closer to what what people want expect from 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 our civilization and our training. Well, I guarantee you this, if somebody were to go down to your place and sit down to a plate of food that you'd made with a rabbit in it, if it was anything like the enchiladas or something where, you know, it wasn't real obvious from the shape of the meat what it was, uh they would just assume it was some of the best chicken they ever ate. They would never know unless you told them. And uh, I think that if people have any concerns about being able to eat meat like that, I can tell you personally from sampling what Marjorie's raising, that that would be your experience in that. One of the things we were talking about off air, and I'd like you to say a little bit about here today, though, is a lot of people rush into this thing with small livestock, and it is important. We both agree they should have it. But just like I said, I have people offering me chicks right now. I'm like, I'm not ready. I don't have things set up yet. I just moved in. It's really important to have what you need in place in advance of bringing animals into your home. And you're probably going to kill some of them anyway when you screw some stuff up at first. That That is basically the truth. And I've seen it over and over again with people that move out into the country. And the classic situation is this. I'm going to buy a farm. I'm going to live out in the country. And they've got 10 acres or whatever they got. And they, they get a pig and they get a couple of goats. And they get a cow and they got a bunch of chickens and they got some ducks. And maybe they've got, you know, who knows what else. And what they've got is a huge nightmare because, you know, this, that requires a lot of different housing, a lot of different pens. They're going to the feed store every week. They've got a huge feed bill. They're, have, they're going from disaster to disaster to disaster. And <laughs> if anybody out there is listening and it's you, you know, just laugh. Sell off most of it. Pick a few of the species that you really want to work with and you really want to know about, chickens or rabbits. I'd re- really recommend just starting with one because there's a lot to learn about every thing. You know, rabbits are different from chickens. You need to learn, uh, you know, they have different diseases. They have different dietary needs. They, You know, you need to learn about reproduction. You need to learn about genetics. You need to learn about health care. You need to learn about feeding and about watering and sheltering. There's so much to learn about each animal and each animal is different. So just start with one and work from there uh, up to others and start with a small quantity. And you're right. You're, you absolutely that's the harshest thing. People go, oh, you know, all my baby chicks died. And you're like, look, that's par for the course. Get over it. You know, put that in the compost pile or, or feed it to the dogs or whatever and, and get some more and go again. And I think uh, one of the things that has been very interesting, a lot of people are just so relieved uh, that, you know, they're not totally messing up when they've killed a few things. I'm like, no, you're, you're doing fine. Well, and nature, nature will do that too. I mean, it makes me think of one of the things I'm thinking about bringing onto our property, uh, sometime next year as we're putting some ponds in are some muscovy ducks. And, uh, 
you know, as a kid, I grew up and everybody said that they were, you know, not really a very good thing to eat. And uh, being a teenager, we went out and bought some from a farmer and and threw some on a fire and ate them anyway. And they were pretty dead gone good. And apparently today, everybody's figured that out. And I went out to a website recently and to buy a, a Drake, um, you know, eight pound uh, Muscovy duck online is about sixty bucks. And wow. uh, they're, they're, they seem like they're a great little livestock. They pretty much take care of themselves. There's city parks everywhere. And apart from the bread kids throw at them, they pretty much look after themselves. But my example there of nature taking care of things, most of those city parks are full of uh, red or slider turtles. And uh, you'll see all these little Muscovy ducks swimming around on that pond. And maybe 10% of them make it through the gauntlet because those turtles, when they're that little, you know, I always feel bad. You see little kids throwing, you know, bread into these ponds off of the, the dock. And all of a sudden you hear bloop. And, you know, they're like, where'd he go? And you're like, well, he's not coming back. <laughs> and I mean, that's just, that is how nature works. You and I were talking. I'd found a, 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 a turkey chick that was probably a day old. It was a loss from its flock. And I figured the raccoons would get it. So I gave him a chance if he didn't make it. Uh, there, there are just some animals are not going to make it, even if you do everything right. And you're, you're not going to do everything right. I don't care how many books you read, who you had as a mentor, how much money you've invested. You're going to mess some stuff up because even like when I was still down in Arlington, your environment where you're at south of Boston is different than my environment in Arlington. And there's subtle things that we each need to learn about our micro environments. There's a, an overall overriding right way. And we can get that being, by being taught by others. But the fine-tuning is going to take an individual um, uh, view, right? Yeah, the other, the other thing about it, too, and it's an organic process, you need to learn what works for you and what doesn't. You know, uh, for example, when we first started out, I had some goats. And um, I, I, I realized in about, um, about three weeks, actually, I, did, I didn't want to deal with goats anymore. They, they were too much. They were competing. I have a whole bunch of edible landscaping and wild crafting and stuff that I like going on. And if those goats ever got out, they liked it too. And and I was constantly having a problem with them. It just wasn't working in my system. And they they were they were jumpy. And then you know we just didn't get together very well. You know. So I ended up selling the goats. And and I found geese. And then we also ended up with miniature cattle. And I, these were animals that we could work with. We really liked them. They they suited our personalities better. I, I would have never known that before until I tried it. So you've got to try things. You know, some people, and of course there's so many zillions of breeds of chickens and everybody kind of gets into what's their favorite breed of chicken or what they like. Or, or you know, some people, ducks work great for them. Or I met a guy recently that he, he didn't really like chickens or rabbits. He had this whole system set up for pigeons. It was incredible. You know, he was getting a great amount of meat and doing really great, and that totally worked for him, and he loved the birds. Uh, so it's, it's also a process of discovering, you know, this is, you're, you're trying to create a life for yourself that's as full of as much joy and, 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 and vibrancy as possible. So, so find animals that you really, uh, you know, you can really, really sympathize with, can really connect with and, and enjoy. Yeah, I completely agree. I want to, we're getting toward the end here. I want to make sure we give people, you know, resources, get them to your website and all. And, uh, on your website, you got a couple resources that I want to, uh, just kind of ask you about before we do that. And one is you've got an article on there, uh, it says to the effect, do you need a gun to garden? What's that all about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I'm starting to sell the DVD and I go to the, to some local stores here. This is a couple of years ago. And um, and uh, one of the store owners said, um, I said, you know, it's all locally made. It's all about growing food. You never know. And he goes, I'm never going to need to grow food. And I said, disaster, you know, end of the world as we know it. Think about it. And he goes, no, no, I'm never going to need to grow food. And I said, why not? And he said, 
So out from under his counter, he whips out some big black semi-automatic something, and he says, with this, I'm going to get all the food I need. And I mean, I just, what? what? <laughs> I just, I he's going to get his ass shot is what he's going to get. <laughs> well, you know, I'm like, I never had really been a firearms person or anything. You know, I'm kind of like, whoa. Well, you know, needless to say, we're not selling DVDs there, but it just so shook me. And I've, I've run into that. And, you know, I do a lot of public speaking, and I've had a lot of people resonate with that story. And I've had a lot of people tell me that that, you know, and I've had other people, quite frankly, tell me that. I've had radio hosts on the radio, on the air, say, yeah, that's my strategy. Totally. I'm going to go find people like you. Thank you for growing Freaking up. idiots is what they are. They are. They have they no are. idea what they're talking about. They live in a fantasy land. And um, well, people I like that, I think, will make it about 15 minutes uh, in, in a real end-of-the-world scenario. But go ahead. I just, they just, It just pisses me off. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, no, I, I, you know, yeah, I mean, I've been through that whole emotional world. But really, I was living in a fantasy land, too, because, you know, if you're looking at hard times, you've also got to realize the reality of some, some personal defense. And, and since then... I completely you know, agree I, with that, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, as a woman or whatever, I mean, that was never a part of my background, and 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 a lot of people just don't want to deal with that kind of issue. Uh, but but yes, you know, and since then I've I've you know I've, I've kind of become real fond of my Glock 19, my Ruger 10-22, and my Remington 870. You know, these are tools, and it's shooting has become a lot of fun for me. But I'm really glad that I stepped into that world, and it was it was from that one shop owner in the beginning that really kind of rocked my world. And I, and I think it's an issue that a lot of people haven't thought through carefully. And so, yeah, we, 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 I talk about that quite frequently. You probably do need a gun to garden. Um, you know, that's just a reality of what's going on out there. Another article that you have on there is, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Secret to a Green Thumb. Could you share the secret with us on the air? Yep, and that goes right back to fertility of what we were talking about earlier. And really, I want to encourage everybody to go out and start a compost pile if you don't have one already. And if you already have one, start another one because it really takes a huge amount of fertility. In the DVD, we have some wonderful graphics that show you just how much fertility you're going to need. And you need it's way more than any of us ever imagined. I was on a radio show a little while ago, and one of the callers called in, and he said, hey, I've had this garden. It's been growing and producing really well for like three years, and then last year, it all just didn't go real well, and I'm thinking that the government flew over and was spraying chemtrails on me. And I said, you know, I don't know about chemtrails. Maybe, maybe not. But ha- what kind of fertility have you been adding to your garden? He said, well, I didn't put anything on it. I'm like, well, let's talk about fertility. There's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, so there's your problem. You know, it's, it, it requires a huge amount more. And fertility is the secret to a green thumb. That is the number one thing, is is making sure you have good, rich, deep soil. And the way to get that is to start is to start making your own compost. And it really has been mind-boggling to me to see how well things do when they're in a healthy environment. And that comes from from having the right fertility. Well, your your DVD that, that explains all this is again called Back. Uh, food production system for a backyard or a small farm. And we advertised it on this show for you for over a year, and I, I personally recommended it. And way back then I told you you were selling it for far too little money for everything that was in it. And and it does cost a lot more today than it did back then. Uh, but you wanted to run a special for TSP listeners on that, right? We do. And at our website, and we've got a secret page just for survival podcast listeners. It's backyardfoodproduction.com forward slash TSP. And you'll go through our what's called a squeeze page there where we talk all about the DVD and why you want to buy it. And at the bottom is going to be a button that for survival um, 
Survival Podcast listeners, you'll get a 10% discount. And, uh, you know, we'll leave this up for a couple of weeks or a month to let, you know, those who listen and, and backlog and listen later or, or may not get to it right away, so it'll be available for folks for a while. But we'll, we'll give you a 10% discount on it. Um, and it's, you know, we're, we're actually still thinking, unfortunately, we may have to increase the, the price more. And, and uh, one of the things small business people don't realize is the cost of marketing and advertising, and I am certainly guilty of that. It's, it's actually a lot. To get a, a message out to a wider audience costs a lot more than I had ever uh, imagined or thought about. So we're, we're trying to keep it low, but, but there is a good chance it may go up. So I'd encourage everybody to get it pretty quickly. Well, folks, let me say a couple things on that. One, if you're driving your car right now, don't try to write it down on your leg. I'm going to put a link in today's show notes, and I'll be putting a blog post out later this week about it as well. So you'll be able to find it easy enough. And it's it's Marjorie's site slash TSP as well, so it should make it fairly easy. Uh, the other thing is Marjorie's absolutely right about the cost of getting a message out in marketing and trying to run a profitable business. I just want to be clear why I told her to raise the price. It's because how good I thought the product was and what I thought its value was. And that was really my inkling there. And I still think it's a value at what she's selling it at. And one of the things I wanted you to inform people of is there's also like a bonus CD on there. And there's a lot of information there. Now, most of it is information. If you went out and looked for it yourself, you could find it. It wouldn't cost you anything. But you would have to spend days, if not weeks, to get it all together. And you'd have to know what you was looking for. Um, there's a lot of stuff on there. You want to tell folks some of the stuff that's on that bonus CD? Sure, and we talk about it in the DVD a lot. We'll reference you. So we have a whole section on water, and then we say, hey, on the document section, there's going to be a whole thing, uh, the Texas Rainwater Collection Manual, and it's how do you build a system, and what does it look like, and what are some of the maintenance issues. So how do you do rainwater collection? Um, a whole book on seed saving uh, for beginners and intermediate and advanced seed savers. What are things you need to look for, think about separation and genetics and selection? Uh, we've got a thing on how to tan a rabbit hide, um, some basic introduction to barrel ponics, growing, if you don't have a lot of room, growing fish and, and vegetables in different barrels that you pump the water through. I work with some military people that don't have land, and they do that very effectively. They move all over the world. They take their, their, their barrels with them, and then they have their own food supply. Uh, we also, uh, different things about wildcrafting, how to process acorns, probably one of the most common wild foods in the United States that's readily available and full of nutrition. For people in the Southwest, we have some stuff about mesquite and mesquite beans and how to process them and use them. Uh, so a whole variety of documents that just support the material compost. We have numerous different ways of documents of different ways to do compost. Personally, I've found that I do better if I have some visual stuff and then I have some stuff I can read and I go out and experiment with something and then I go back and forth. Um, Bill Mollison, uh, somebody wrote down design notes from a design class that he taught. This is the founder of Permaculture. And I think we have like 10 sets of these bioregional notes that Bill Mollison uh, basically created on, on different ways to do permaculture in different regions, arid regions, tropical regions, cold northern climates, temperate climates, all different kind of re methods and, and methodologies. So if you can't afford a permaculture course, you can read through these design notes and really get the gist of, of what they're talking about there. So there are a ton of resources. Something like um, 60 documents are all in a PDF format. So you can use either a Mac or a PC. And, and as you said, you know, most of them are pretty much public domain, but they're documents that I use regularly. They're part of my library. And uh, we wanted to give people something that they'd have a library. Uh, I've always felt that the Internet is a hugely vulnerable thing that we all take unbelievably for granted. But, you know, I think, I think the example in Egypt, I mean, they shut that down as soon as there was any, any sort of civil unrest going on. 
And I wanted intentionally to have something. You know, here's a video and then here's a CD-ROM full of documents, but at least you have something in case of whatever. I think that's a great point, and I'd like people to take that not just as it's a great product, but I'd also like people to take that as a tip. And when you guys find an informational resource that you think you might want to rely on in the future, there's, you know, the download function is probably the most underutilized function there is. And I can tell you that it's not just for the government shutting it down. It's for the utilities failing themselves or because you might go to a place where, you know, that beautiful, fast Internet connection that you're all spoiled with, um, you may end up in a location where it doesn't work that way. Um, so I think that's a huge thing to make sure that we're not only taking advantage of great resources like you've put together, but when we find something for ourselves, and, you know, there's some little Firefox extensions and all that even let you download YouTube videos and things like that. And, uh Again, I think that's underutilized, so that's that's a great tip there. Uh, again, the website is BackyardFoodProduction.com, and the special uh, page, so you can get that 10% discount, is BackyardFoodProduction.com forward slash DSP. And Marjorie, man, uh, this is another great interview. We're already over time. I could have kept going. Luckily, I work for myself, so I'm not going to get in trouble for doing it. Um, but we're going to have to have you back on again and again and again because you just have so much information and so much wisdom to share with the audience. Well, Jack, you have been so supportive, and the listeners have been so supportive. I don't know how many people I've gotten into really fabulous email, and then also some of them just personal relationships. And we all got connected through the Survival Podcast. And I, you know, I love talking to people and say, oh, I've listened to Jack, because right away I, I know that they have a level of understanding and a, and a level of desire and a, and a level of, of involvement of people that I want to be engaged with. And I really want to thank the listenership over the years. It's, it's been fantastic. And, and a wonderful source of support. And um, yeah, and thanks. And I, I definitely look forward. We always have these great conversations. Well, like I said, it's really easy to support somebody when you believe in what they're doing. So we appreciate what you're doing out there, the impact you're having on the community. And again, we'll, you'll be welcome back here at any time. Uh, with that, folks, I am going to wrap up today. Uh, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Marjorie Wildcraft, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution is you.